0: Investor Mindsetters, welcome back to another amazing episode this week. We have Derek Gaunt on the podcast, and I'm really excited to get into what we talk about today. You know, we we end up talking about his experience as a hostage negotiator and how he's brought that experience. To the business world, working with Chris Voss, author of Never Split the Difference, and really end up creating this whole model of how to really work and communicate well using emotional intelligence and some of these other amazing strategies. We walk through the mindset of a hostage negotiator and how you can really think about studying and strategizing to be an effective communicator. And this stuff really applies in your personal relationships, in your business relationships, and definitely when you're in a selling situation. So I took so much away from this episode. I'm really excited. Let's get right into it. But before we do, I have to ask you guys, if you're loving this, please go drop us a five-star review on iTunes, write up something nice. If you've been listening for a while and you're getting any kind of value, it's the biggest thank you that you can give to us. It's the way that we get to reach more people and we are passionate about what we're putting together here. If you haven't, you know, go check out investormindset.com and join the Insider Club to find out about some of the events that we're gonna be putting on that are gonna be announced first to the Investor Mindset Nation Insider Group. Anyways, without further ado, let's get into this episode. All right, guys. Welcome back to the Investor Mindset Podcast. I am excited. I'm always excited to do these shows, but today we have Derek Gaunt of the Black Swan Group in the studio today. How are you doing, Derek? Doing well. Thank you for having me, Stephen. I am excited because Derek, with his 29 years of law enforcement experience, is a member of the Black Swan Group, which is known for their seminars, their workshops, their trainings, which all take strategies of hostage negotiation and bring them to the business world. You know, As a partner of Chris Voss, an author of Never Split the Difference, Derek has worked with some of the top companies in the world and now brings us his book titled Ego, Authority and Failure, Using Emotional Intelligence Like a Hostage Negotiator to Succeed Like a Leader. And I've read this book and it's really good. There's a lot of good takeaways in it. I'm really excited to dive into it and to hear a little bit about Derek's background. You ready to get into this, Derek? Yeah, let's,
1: let's light this candle.
0: With nearly 30 years of law enforcement experience, I mean, you've lived a full life. But why don't we start by taking a look back what events or influences from your childhood shaped who you are today?
1: I think um, work ethic. My mother established a, a very, uh, I want to say admirable work ethic. She was a single parent raising two kids on her own. Um, and she was out of the house, you know, 15, 16, 17 hours a day. And 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 i I just wanted to be able to, match that intensity, um, when I got into the professional world. And so, um, anything that I attacked, I attacked with a lot of, um, a lot of vim, a lot of vigor, and I was going to pour all into it as she did, pouring it all into her profession and pouring it into myself and and my sister. Uh, so I I think the formative stuff Definitely came from her example of how you should put your nose to the grindstone and keep pushing forward regardless of the circumstances.
0: Yeah, so as a single parent, I can relate to that. That's how it was growing up for for us as well. It's like as a single parent, I imagine you looked at her and you saw, well, she was not going to give up no matter how many challenges she ran into. How do you think that kind of impacted the way that you've kind of developed in your career and what you've been doing?
1: She was a failure is not an option lady right? She had two kids that were counting on her. And uh, when I started in law enforcement, um, I knew early on I wanted to to be looked at differently. And um, what uh-huh. I mean by that is that cops in general are A-types, right?
0: Uh-huh.
1: And once you get into a specialized unit, I don't care what that specialized unit, you view yourself as an A-type of the A-types, right? And I wanted to be that uh-huh. guy that the cops called when they got into trouble. Uh, where failure was not an option. And th- and that's what led me to my role as a as a hostage negotiator. I started my law enforcement career in eighty eight, became a negotiator in ninety seven, and I never looked
0: back. Yeah. Well I can I can only imagine, you know, being surrounded by A types like that, what made you get into that profession rather than any of the millions of other things that you might have been able to do? What inspired you to do that?
1: Uh I was friends with a a deputy sheriff for uh, the Alexandria Sheriff's Office, and and um, he was he he was wondering if I had ever considered a career in law enforcement. In fact, he asked, that's the actual question that he asked me was, "Have you ever considered a career in law enforcement?" And I said, "Yeah, I considered it, but you know, um, that's all I've done is considered it." And he looked mm-hmm. me in my eye and he said, "What are you going to do about it?" And I said, "Huh, I can stop thinking about it, and I can just jump in and do it." And so. I did. I applied with three agencies, and one of the agencies that I applied with said, "You need to go with the first agency that said yes." And that, for me, was the Alexandria Police Department, and that's where that's where I was raised from a pup, if, if you will.
0: <laughs> what are you going to do about it? That is a powerful question, you know, to ask yourself or ask others when they say they want to do something, because you know, just wanting to do it doesn't mean much, that's, but it's actually exactly the right. action that it took. So. Talk to us a little bit about this. For those folks who don't know Chris Voss or don't know what the Black Swan Group has been doing, kind of talk to us about this idea of taking the tactics and strategies from hostage negotiation and bringing them to the business world and uh, you know how it plays in.
1: Yeah, a lot of people, it's a head-scratcher for most. Uh, one of the questions that's asked frequently is how can I do what you did, which was use your communication skills to save lives, apply to the business world? and um, the, the translation is pretty easy when you think about it, because on either side, whether you're talking law enforcement or business, you're dealing with human beings. If you're dealing with human beings, you're dealing with emotions. If you're dealing with emotions, some of those emotions are going to be negative and negative emotions impact decision making and they impact behavior. And we learned that a long time ago in, in, in hostage negotiations that it's not about us. And where we want to go but it's really trying to understand the lay of the land as as the other side sees it and when you can defer to the other side and i don't care if that's a a, if you're talking one of your clients a buyer or a seller or you're talking about uh your your husband wife significant other you're talking about your kid or you're talking about a business partner Mm -hmm. the other side is bringing to the table a negative emotion and your job is to ferret that out, understand the motivation behind it and mitigate it before you can move the process along. Many times we get the the sequencing wrong, right? We want to go mm-hmm. into the table and state our goals and objective and then throw all of this facts, all the facts and data on the table that support our goal and objective. And then we get pushed back from the other side and we can't figure out why. And so, mm-hmm. It's all about sequencing, deferring yourself to the other side, using tactical empathy, finding out what those negative emotions are, mitigating them, and then move on to problem solving. That's the way we operate in the hostage negotiations world. And because you're dealing with human beings in the business world, the skills apply. Because at the end of the day, the majority of your folks are real estate investors. They are spending their time driving for a yes, Mm -hmm. Anytime you're driving for a, yes, you are in a negotiation. You guys are compliance professionals. Mm -hmm. You are trying to get them to buy a good or a service, right? The ultimate compliance professionals on the planet are hostage negotiators, right? Mm -hmm. We're trying to get, we're we're trying to move them from point A to point B. You guys sell real estate and, and the services associated with it. I sold jail time and I got people to buy it all of the time.
0: So it's this idea of really taking this concept of how can I connect with that person on a personal level, build that rapport so that I can get them to come over to my side with them feeling like it was really their idea? Yeah, it's, it's all
1: about what you said earlier, rapport building in order to get to that place where you have developed trust-based influence and then you begin to move them. Then you can begin to change their behavior impacted the decision you're making. And, and, and rapport is the most important thing. You don't, it doesn't mean that you necessarily have to like the other side or agree mm-hmm. with the other side. You don't even have to have common ground with the other side. That common ground theory has, has made people a lot of money over the years, but it is not the only way. It is not the best way to establish rapport. Because in my job, my old job, common ground, how much common ground do you think that I had with the average hostage taker, criminal? Yeah. There, there wasn't a lot. Yeah. And so that's where the black swan method comes into play as being more effective than other methods that are out there because it works without common ground.
0: Yeah, well, it's it's so applicable to what we do because, you know, I'm a lot of our folks are working in different industries, maybe they're in real estate, maybe they're not, maybe they're thinking about it, but in my world as a home buyer, I'm sitting across the table from someone who owns a home and they're dealing with some kind of life situation or their house is in terrible shape. I mean, look around my house. Like I've taken really great care of it. I'm paying my bills on time. I'm not in that situation. So for me to be able to try to build that common ground to say, hey, I understand what you're going through. I would have gone through the same thing. It's almost impossible at times, but you can still build rapport. And I think that's really important. So as I was reading the book, you have so many great stories in here. Um, Tell us about the pawn shop negotiation and talk to us about one of the strategies that you guys used when you were in that situation, how you ended up uh, coming out the other side?
1: Yeah, so uh, the pawn shop situation was um, was an event that occurred earlier in my career. Uh, two guys came from Maryland to the state of Virginia and, and, and robbed a pawn shop. Um, and they were interrupted in the middle of the crime. A 12-year-old boy was riding by. He sees what's going on. He tells the manager of a neighboring business. And that manager calls us. We respond, we challenge these guys as they're coming out of the back door. And immediately they go back in and they take um, eight people hostage. And so we know right off the bat that we're going to be dealing with an individual who's operating at an intense motion, emotional level brought on by a rapid loss of one of our most cherished possessions, and that's our freedom. Mm-hmm. Immediately, his freedom was compromised and it put him into a crisis state. And when he's in a crisis state, he doesn't have any cognitive maps yet developed on how to get himself out of this crisis state. So he did the most expedient thing that he could think of at the time, which was snatch
0: hostages, right? So he freaked out. He freaked out. He thought to himself, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to hold everyone hostage. Yeah, and then yeah. he's stuck in this situation
1: you guys get the call. And, and the, so- you know that doesn't make sense. The, qu- the quickest yeah. way to get the police to leave you alone is not to snatch hostages, right? Yeah. You know that. I know that. You take him out of that circumstance, he would know that. But what was it? It was that negative emotion, that a negative emotion associated with the threat and the fear blocks his prefrontal lobe and now he can't process. And so we know that when we get on the phone with him, we're likely going to be attacked. Whenever you're dealing with someone who's operating in an intense emotional level, the the likelihood that you're going to be attacked is significantly increased. And once we got the right phone number and we actually called into the business, the threats and the demands and the anger were the first things out of his mouth. Don't come in here. If you guys come in here, um, somebody's going to get hurt and I promise you the blood's going to be on your hands. And he was cursing us up one side and down the other, yelling and screaming at us and threatening. And so our job is to use primarily labels, calibrated questions and mirrors to return him to a normal functioning level, right? Because when emotions are high, rational thinking is low and you can't direct their decision making when they're at, at that elevated state. So one of the first things that we asked him was, you know, we reassured him that we weren't coming in and then we asked him, how did we get here today? I know Mm -hmm. in my mind that the precipitating event occurred within the previous 24 to 48 hours. I need to find out what that is because he didn't wake up that morning and say, I'm going to drive to Alexandria, Virginia and take eight hostages. He said, I'm going to rob the place. And so that tells me a lot about his station in life. And so we're going to attack
0: that. What you're thinking to yourself is I need to ask some questions here to find out what his motivation is, why he decided to take this action and and what got us to this point, which is so applicable to our world. Why did you guys give us a call? Why were you looking for a service from us? How do you think we might be able to help you? Um, and then where do we go from there? Yeah,
1: yeah. A- actually, if you're using those questions in, 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 your, uh, in your line of work, um, that why question is critical. Why would you guys mm-hmm. ever want to do business with us? you know that's the yeah. that's a proof of life because at the end of the day and I'm getting off of the pawn shop story but I wanted to make this point uh-huh. because of what you brought up most calls like that are false calls those those are vetting calls okay. those are calls to determine um what you're charging what uh what you bring to the table so that he can take or she can take that back to a competitor and drive their price uh-huh. down right yeah and so the only thing worse than no deal is taking a long time to figure out there's no deal. So that mm-hmm. why question is a great way to figure out if you're the fool or the favorite. In any deal, in any conversation, mm-hmm. there's a fool and there's a favorite. Uh-huh. Um, and if you don't know which one you are, you're probably the fool. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, we're trying to figure out motivation. Why did this occur? We're asking why without asking why to determine what transpired and he began to share that story with us he he served 17 years in a penitentiary he had just been paroled six months before um he was in the penitentiary for armed robbery hello Uh uh-huh he became addicted to heroin and was subjected to all kinds of uh inhumane behavior while he was incarcerated and slowly the anger in his voice started to dissipate and Uh as the anger comes down the rational thinking starts to go up and he's starting to think more clearly. And at the end of the first hour, he says, I'm going to let four of these people go. Uh, Actually, what he said was a few of these people go. In reality, he let five go. Four hostages and his partner came out posing as a hostage. Uh And we go into the, and still, we're still using labels, mirrors, uh, and calibrated questions to get him to share his story. His wife is all over him about getting a job well you know he's a convicted felon so he's going to have a very difficult time getting a job uh he's tired of having to explain to other people the 17 year hole in his resume and and people are always judging him and he's trying to do the right thing and he can't he keeps getting kicked in the gut in fact one of the quotes that he he said uh was uh the the system was not set up for a black man to succeed um in america Mm -hmm. today and shortly after that now we're into the second hour he starts to cry Mm-hmm. which is good for us right because he's, he's yeah he's he's dumping his bucket and that fulcrum if you think of emotions on a fulcrum and emotions are high rational thinking is low now this thing is starting to mm-hmm. tip in, into this um into this balance uh but shortly after that after he tells us the story about being kicked in the gut and, and and not being appreciated and trying to do the best he can and still getting pushed back. He stopped crying and he says, I know what I need to do. He says, look, man, I'm going to tell you, my name is not Mike. Mm. It's Keith. Well, Mm Stephen, we knew he was Keith all along, but again, we're subordinating ourselves. We're deferring. And so We're looking at things from his frame of reference. If he wanted to be Mike, we were going to let him be Mike.
0: So so in this process, you're actually allowing, even though you know information about what he's sharing is not true, you're allowing him to continue to share that. You're not correcting him. You're keeping those objections back because you want to make sure that you're building rapport. And if you were going to start arguing with him, you'd start getting those emotions high and that rapport level would go down because it would start to be a little bit of a conflict
1: it was that and it's a it's a it's a great gauge of trust Mm. why did he not give me his name to begin with he didn't give the name to begin with because he didn't trust me
0: Mm.
1: right and so there is no greater sign that trust and rapport has been established than when somebody reveals to you their true identity because that is another thing that we will fight for and conceal almost to the death
0: and when you're in that situation, and somebody's not telling the truth, and you know it, at what point does it make sense for you to call a spade a spade? Does it? Is there ever a time where you would, you know, tactically say, "Hey, well, actually, Keith, I know this," or maybe it's some other type of information that they're holding back? Is there ever a time where it makes sense to kind of call somebody out on that from a strategic level?
1: Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, but our human nature conditioning says that. We want to call them out on it as soon as we can, right? Uh-huh. Because that's going to make us feel better, right? And that's going to put them in their place. Yeah. That's going to that's going to show them that I've got my ducks in a row. I've done my due diligence. I know what your backstory is. You can't come in here and tell me this, that, or the other thing because I know it's not true. Yeah. The problem with that is that is that's explosive, right? And so strategically, yeah. it's not going to occur until after you've had a chance to build that rapport. When does that occur? I don't know. Your gut is going to tell you when that rapport has been built. Uh So you got to listen to your gut. But the tactical or the strategic way to address that is simply to say, you're saying X, Y, and Z. Would Mm -hmm. it be a bad idea if I shared with you some information that I have? And then you share that information, which is going to be diametrically opposed to X, Y, and Z. And you're going to say, on the one hand, we have this. On the other hand, we have that. And the two don't line up. How is what I'm seeing wrong? And now, now is what I'm seeing wrong. Yeah. And now you're giving them the opportunity to explain it because, uh, you know, another driving motor in, motivation in human nature is to be consistent mm-hmm. in word and thought and in action. And when you delicately point out that there's an inconsistency in the actual information versus what they're telling you, now they've, that discomfort will cause them to explain it.
0: But I want to point something out for the listeners here. I hope you guys caught that when Derek was explaining this the word track that he would recommend using, it wasn't confrontational at all. Like it wasn't you're wrong, I'm right, listen to me. The tone of voice was very calm and it was asking a question and it was saying, "Hey, well this is what I've got. You know, what you're you're sharing is a little bit different. How can thing, you know, how do these things line up and what it ends up it made me feel like, wow, if I was in a conflict, even with a spouse or a business partner or a client, I I feel like if I was on the other side of that, I'd feel great being like, yeah, you know what? They don't line up, you know? Right. The truth is.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. And so that was the whole purpose behind letting him run with with Mike. But once he shares the name, that's huge as far as whether or not rapport has been, I think there's no question at this point. And Uh he stops crying and he says, I know what I need to do. Look, I can't go back. I'm not going back. Mm. Uh, But these people had nothing to do with my circumstance. And one by one, he starts to, now I I failed to mention this, he had bound all of these hostages at the ankle and wrist with duct tape. So he's starting to Uh take the duct tape from them. And he's not talking on the phone anymore, but the phone is still off the hook so we can hear he's apologizing to each one of the hostages i didn't mean to do that to you make sure you have all your belongings and then he says back on the phone he says jill is the last person that's going to come out when jill comes out let the door close and when the door close closes it would all be over and true to his word jill was the last Mm -hmm. one that came out and it was all over in the matter of seconds after that door closed and, and there's some people that may listen to that and view that as, well, how can he say that that was a, um, a success? Because that's what I called it. It's a success because everybody that we were sent there to protect went home. And, yeah. and, and we got there because we diffused those negative emotions, returned him to a normal functioning level or the NFL, as we like to call it in the business, returned uh-huh. him to that normal functioning level. Okay. And then he was able to um, start to process things a little bit better.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's unfortunate you didn't mention it maybe bluntly, but this guy ended up, you know, ending his life right there. It's unfortunate that he got to that point, but it sounds like through the process of using some of these strategies, which I think what I captured um, was some labels and some mirrors, um, some calibrated questions, some of that tactical empathy, you're applying these strategies to build that rapport, to get this guy to really open up. And while he's opening up, you realize that everything he was doing was wrong and he wasn't going to get what he wanted. Now, it's unfortunate you weren't able to save him as well, but you saved so many other people. So, I mean, just in that story, I can see how this applies, one, to my own personal relationships and why I really need to study up on some of this stuff. But two, how it really applies to our business. And frankly, you know, any kind of social interaction because it's through that connection where you can get to understand what people really want, help them kind of get there if you're able to. Right. And
1: uh, what what you really, everyone needs to understand is that regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the conversation, regardless of the psychological makeup of the person, everybody on this planet wants somebody else to understand what they're going through, how they feel, what their circumstances are, what internal and external pressures are they under. Every single person. In fact, there's, there's research out there that says that there's a biological need for that. Really? Which is great because as a black swan trained negotiator, that's what we're all about. Providing that support. Providing that ear to get people to like us, so to speak. You know, because at the end of the day, your brain works up to 31% better when you're in a positive frame of mind. So my job, your job with clients is to put them in a positive frame of mind. Make them "quote unquote" like you. People will they're 6 times more likely to make a deal with you simply because they like you based on no other criteria whatsoever. So what does that tell you? When you're getting into these difficult conversations, be likable. Doesn't mean that you're not going to be in pursuit of your goal or your objective, just be likable doing
0: it. Yeah. I that's a huge that's a huge takeaway and I hope everyone will listen to this over and over again. So if we take a look at the mindset of a hostage negotiator, how are you going into these situations thinking about it? After doing this for 20 plus years, um, when you walk into a situation, you're having a quote unquote difficult conversation um, and you're kind of analyzing and understanding how you're going to move forward. What are you thinking? And how are you deciding which strategy you're going to put forth? And I'm sure after a while, it just comes naturally, but kind of walk us through that mindset.
1: So the mindset number one is, um, stick to your training. Your training will never fail you. That was, that was a mantra that was spoken into my ear by one of my mentors when I first became a negotiator. And I spoke it into the ears of all of those who came after me. Stick to your training. Your training will not fail you. I put a new negotiator on the phone. Uh, her very first negotiation. She had never been on the phone before. And when I told her she was going to get the number one spot, um, her eyes became as big as saucers. She, the saliva left her mouth and she didn't know what she was going to do. But she was so new, she had never developed any bad habits. So what did she do? She took out her book and she stuck to her training. And so that's the first thing I, I would uh, implore you to do is stick to your training. Number two, you're going into a difficult conversation. Anytime you're driving for a yes, It's a difficult conversation on the person who's going to generate that yes. There is a negative opinion, assumption, or impression that they have about you, that they have about the people you represent, and that they have about the circumstance. You can't get around it. And so as a result, I know going into those kinds of conversations that at some point, I'm going to be attacked. And how do I handle the attack? The attack can come from two places. It can become from, it can come from them being offended or it can come from them because it bore fruit for them in the past. And it, and they use it as a manipulative tool. And so I know number one, I'm going to get attacked. I'm going to be called names. Uh, my character is going to be impugned. Um, they're going to question my integrity and they're going to talk about the people um, that I represent in a bad way. So how am I going to respond to that? My, my job is to stay seated, weather that storm. That storm is going to last 30 to 45 seconds tops. Just sit there and take it, and then you'll just mm-hmm. back off. It seems like I said something that really offended you. I'm sorry, that was not my intention. What caused that? Mm-hmm. And when you ask what caused that, you're going to be able to determine where that attack came from. Did it come from a genuine place of offense? Or did it come because this guy uses the tactic to manipulate people, and you can just start pulling it apart. Hmm. And then uh, you're gonna you're gonna prep yourself with accusations audits. You know you've read the book close to ten times now. You know what I'm talking about. But for those who haven't read it, yeah. accusations audits is what I lead almost every difficult conversation with because it attacks the negatives immediately before we even get to the crux of the conversation. I'm going after the negative opinions, assumptions, and impressions that they have about me. And again, anytime you're driving for a yes, those negatives are out there. You ignore them at your own peril. And then there's a couple of um, go-to calibrated questions, go-to labels that I want to put down on a piece of paper to keep um, in front of me just before we go into the difficult conversation. And Finally, preparing myself mentally to subordinate myself. And if you keep all of those things in mind, you'll go into these difficult conversations uh, better armed um, to, to, to uh, demonstrate tactical empathy to the other person and move that needle in the direction you want to go.
0: Absolutely. That is really great. I just want to summarize that again for us just so, to make sure I've got it. Um, so we want to stick to our training. We want to stay confident So we want to stick to our training, which is what Brandon Voss, when he was on the podcast, he was talking about. That confidence comes from that training. And so you've already, if you've been studying this stuff, you know it, go into it with that right mindset. Um, If you're going to go into a difficult conversation, you have to recognize that there's going to be strategies that people are going to use on you that either is because they're emotional or because it worked for them in the past. So you need to figure out how and why uh, they're acting the way they are. Is it a feeling, or is it a strategy? Uh, you want to prepare yourself, which is always important going into any kind of conversation. Um, and you, you know, in the book, uh, you have some specific strategies on how to prepare yourself, uh, which it sounds like, you know, preparing some of those uh, labels, mm-hmm. uh, preparing some of those calibrated questions, and then preparing the accusation audit, which are really just the negative things that the other side is probably going to think about you that you're going to bring up on your own yeah. so, so that it's out on the table. Uh, And then you're going to subordinate yourself, which is a really strong idea um, coming into it, not trying to be that dominant person. And I think that is something that not a lot of people are really thinking about when they go into a negotiation. They're always trying to be the top dog. But really, it sounds like your takeaway is purposefully don't be the top dog. Subordinate yourself to them so that you can come in and build that rapport and hopefully make some ground.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know the, the top dog mentality. People tell us all the stories all the time about how they gone they gone into a negotiation and they really kicked the crap out of the other side. You know they uh-huh. say they say things like, um, you know, Stephen and I went and had our our, our conversation and and Stephen knows that I'm a proficient negotiator. I beat him about the head and shoulders in that room, and he knows the next time that he sits down with me, he better bring a lunch and some band aids because it's going to be a long day. Yeah. Well, the problem with that is that if you know how bad you beat the other side, the other side knows how bad they got beaten. And it's Mm -hmm. bad long-term for business. I don't care what industry you're in. We are all in relatively small communities. And if Mm -hmm. you don't think your reputation is going to precede you in that regard, you're mistaken. Don't be mean to somebody who can hurt you by doing absolutely nothing. Because given the opportunity, they will do absolutely nothing for you in the future. And it's bad long-term for business.
0: Yeah, wow, wow. This is so great. I've got a couple more questions for you. I know our time is limited here. Um, So talk to us a little bit about how you define success and what does success look like to you, Derek?
1: Success for me, number one, are you happy? Mm -hmm. Don't mess with happy. Um, I've met people who were not happy until they got to the upper levels in law enforcement. They are the chief of police or the, the supervisory special agent in charge of this group or that group. Um, And I met, I've met guys who've worked in patrol all their career for 30 years. They're just on the road because they're happy. So success for me is being happy. Success for me is making those that I come in contact with a little bit better, whether they're, subordinates whether they're peers or you know back in the day when they were supervised i want them to take something away that they didn't have before they started interacting with me and and for me if i can if if i can and and to maintain myself with integrity and not being ashamed of the guy that's looking back at me in the mirror i'm good with that that's, that's success. I don't need to make a ton of money to have the biggest house and drive the best cars on the planet. Um, I just want to make sure that you know everybody I come in contact with takes a little bit away from me that they didn't have. They go out and execute and they become better.
0: I love that definition. And by that definition, do you feel like you've hit success, Derek? I, I think so.
1: I've, I've successfully raised two kids. Uh, they didn't get involved in any crazy activity. They... they, they um, uh, they didn't get snatched up by the streets. You know, in my line of work, there are so many things uh-huh. out there that can snatch either literally or figuratively kids from the street. And I got them to adulthood. Um, I'm not ashamed of the guy that I, that I see in the mirror. And I, I, I try to conduct myself with integrity consciously. If I've done something that I didn't know that I was doing, that was, that was questionable. People call me on it and I admit fault. So yeah, I'm, I think I've reached. I think I've reached it, but I'm striving to get better.
0: I never stop pursuing getting better. All achievers are always trying to get better. A little growth goes a long way. Well, I think that's inspiring, and uh, I'm inspired by hearing your definition of success. And I can tell that you're you've hit success in my book, definitely based on your definition. So tell me, you know, on that success note, what are some of the keystone habits, the things you do on a daily or weekly basis that have led to some of that success?
1: Oh, uh, I you know I I mentioned it before. And it's not just uh, a cliche. It's not just a tagline, but understanding that it's not about you, regardless of the circumstance. Stop Uh thinking that it's always about you and where you want to go. And once you get your head around that, um, you can demonstrate to other people that you care, that you care on some level. And they may not understand why, but once you start to execute this stuff, showing that you care, it'll change the way you think about talking to another person. It'll change the way they receive the message. They're going to look at you differently because you're going to be thinking, speaking, and acting differently. And so that's 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 critical to anyone's success. Is, is yeah, you know your goal and objective is going to be there. Don't worry about it. It's going to be there. Uh-huh. But really try to defer and subordinate yourself to everybody you come in contact with and get their story.
0: Yeah. So you you do that on a daily basis, pretty much in every interaction you run into. You got, you got to get your reps in, right? Especially
1: those of you who are new to the black swan method. You got to get your reps in, you know, I'm not, I'm not a hostage negotiator anymore. So therefore, you know, back in the day we trained once a month, right? So Uh we were always keeping that blade sharp. Well, I don't. I don't train once a month anymore. So how do I keep my blade sharp? Low mm-hmm. stakes practice. I go into Starbucks. I ask the barista, "How are you doing?" She's used to hearing that fifty times a day, but what mm-hmm. she's not used to hearing is this. I say, "How you're doing?" And she goes, "Eh, you know." And I say, "It sounds like you've had a pretty rough morning." Mm-hmm. Watch how much more information she vomits up about what's gone on. Over the course of that morning, I know that two staff members came in late. The delivery truck didn't show up with the pastries. The boss called in sick. So now she's in essence running the shop. All of that information I got out because I said, it seems like you've had a rough one. Uh And so that's a repetition for me. It takes 67 reps to develop a new habit. This stuff that we talk about is counterintuitive. And so if you're not getting your reps in, Uh you're not getting any better. So The short answer to your question is yes. I try to employ it on a daily basis, keeping it top of mind because it keeps my blade sharp.
0: So on that same note, what you just used there, if I'm correct, is a label. And I think it's one of the easier ones to get started with. And I think it's one of the really powerful ones. I've found it really useful in my personal life and in my business life. I think they really go hand in hand. That's what I love about communication and negotiation type things. Can you just teach us a little bit, maybe for the next two or three minutes, just what is a label and why does it work and how can someone use that, you know, just like that example that you just talked about there?
1: Sure. So um, a label is you articulating the emotion, the dynamic, the driving force behind what the person just said. It, it's hanging in a tentative label on what you just heard or what was implied and it's the fastest way to demonstrate that you get it, especially when you are labeling something that they don't say. Remember in my example, I said, how are you today? And she was like, eh, you know. She didn't say that it's been a rough one, mm-hmm. but that's what she implied. And so that's what I labeled. So labeling is the easiest, fastest way to begin rapport building. All the conflict management styles love it. Because it demonstrates that the other side is picking up what they're laying down. And so all you need to remember for a quality label, it looks like, it seems like, it sounds like, you look like, you seem like, you sound like, and then whatever it is. Safe for use because you're not making anything up out of the whole cloth. You're telling the other side, this is what you're giving me. I'm repackaging it and I'm giving it right back to you. And even if you get it wrong, you're going to be on solid ground because you're not passing judgment. Notice, I said seems, sounds, looks. I didn't say they were. Mm-hmm. So there's mm-hmm. there's that safety net there because they can come back and say no, I I'm not angry. And I say I didn't say you were angry. I said you sounded angry. Mm-hmm. How is what I'm hearing wrong?
0: Yeah, that is it's such a great strategy and tactic because it's just part of the way we normally talk, but we can do it intentionally and we can get an intentional result from it. And so you know I. I just got to say, you guys, if you're watching on the video, Ego Authority Failure, please go buy it. Page 241 is where you're going to be able to learn about labels. And obviously, if you've read uh, Never Split the Difference, there's a little bit of learning and, and he walks through some of that in there, but Derek goes deeper in, in this new book. So we're getting into the growth rapid fire round where the questions are quick, but the answers don't need to be. Um, so let's just jump right into it. What's a book that's not yours? That's impacted your life the most, or one you're excited about right now? Oh, uh, extreme ownership.
1: Jocko Willink and Leif mm. Babin, two former Navy SEALs who are now consultants in the uh, corporate world, uh, write a fantastic book on um, on leadership tactics that they learned in the Navy SEALs that uh, are, can be applied to the corporate world.
0: Very, very good book. Definitely recommend everyone check that out. From an inspiration standpoint, who are some of your mentors? people that you learned from or looked up to, and how did they influence your career? Uh, People,
1: uh, It's mentor, uh, Sheriff Dana Lawhorn, he is now the sheriff of the Alexandria Police Department, or I'm sorry, sheriff's office. Um, He's the one that first brought me on the team. He made me a negotiate. Uh He saw something in me um, that made it a good decision on his part um, to bring me onto the team and Uh, I consider him the, the godfather of the team in Alexandria. He developed it out of nothing and, uh, Mm -hmm. was very patient with me during my upbringing. I wasn't always the most, um, amenable negotiator to work with, uh, but Mm -hmm. he, he had me hone my skills. And so I got to give a tip of the hat, uh, to him, Robin Nichols. Um, I mentioned her in the acknowledgement of my book, uh, probably, uh, the best, co-worker, supervisor, and subordinate because I was all of those with her uh, during the course of my career. Um, she's just, uh, she could have written the book, Ego Authority Failure. Mm-hmm. She's that much of a powerful uh, leader within the law enforcement community. And, and I've, I've learned quite a bit from her as well. Um, those would be the top two. Yeah,
0: It's awesome to have good people in your life that have kind of inspired you to do great things. Yeah, yeah, for sure so finally, from a purpose perspective, what drives you to live your best life every day?
1: Uh, I've earned it. And so that's the mindset that I have. You know, I spent, I spent almost 30 years in the trenches. And, and so I've earned it. I keep that in the forefront of my mind. Um, and I am doing what I love right now, uh, which is continuing to refine the, the communication skills that uh, I cut my teeth on and share it with other people. So living my best life is traveling around the country, sharing with individuals, sharing with corporations what has been successful for me and for others to make them better. I just spread the gospel of the black swan method. That's my best life.
0: (laughs) I love it. I love it. Well, this has been so much fun. I've gotten so much out of it personally, and I know that our listeners have gotten a ton out of it as well. Where can people find out more about you and get in touch? Limited.com. Um
1: You can go there uh, and uh, drop a line in the info section and uh, I respond to all emails. It may not be in a, the most timely of fashions, but I get to all of them. Uh, if you've got any questions, comments, or concerns, you can drop them in there. Uh, you can hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm also there. Uh, and of course, as always, Ego Authority Failure, available to you at um, Amazon. Would appreciate your support.
0: I do recommend it, guys. I've gotten some good stuff out of it. I think some of these strategies are incredibly important just to your life in general, let alone the business, which is what runs our life. So thank you so much, Derek. We'll have the the links to all of that stuff we talked about in the show notes. Um, so look forward to the next time we get to hang out.
1: Hey, Steven, anytime. Give me a call and we'll
0: do it again. Awesome, thanks, buddy. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Investor Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend.